Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Willa Johnson. In honor of Women's History Month, WMMT has been airing a series of Mountain Talk episodes focusing on women's histories, current realities, and futures in the Appalachian region and beyond. Tonight's episode is brought to us by four young women who are fellows in a project called All Access EKY. All Access EKY is an initiative coordinated by the Kentucky Health Justice Network, Apple Shop, and Power to Decide. All Access EKY works with 10 southeastern Kentucky counties to build support for programs and services to ensure young people have access to the full range of contraceptive methods. Through a combination of education, storytelling, advocacy, and community organizing, All Access EKY is addressing the root cause of unplanned pregnancy in southeastern Kentucky. Our first interview comes from Taylor Pratt, an 18-year-old fellow who has been with All Access EKY for two semesters. She recently sat down with Michella Phipps and Paulina Gover to talk about their experiences with reproductive health care both in and out of the region. Hey y'all, I'm Taylor Pratt and I work for All Access EKY Reproductive Health Project. I am a fellow and I'm sitting here with special guests Paulina and Michella. We're going to be talking a little bit about women's reproductive health. So where are you all from? Well, I am originally from Neon, Kentucky, and I'm currently living in Whitesburg. And I am originally from Omaha, Nebraska, and I'm currently living in Whitesburg. Tell me a little bit about yourselves. Um, well, I graduated from Letcher County Central in 2010, and then a few years after graduating, I decided to go to college at Moorhead State University, where I majored in sociology and women's studies, and then I decided to come back. So here I am with new experiences, and uh, yeah, just enjoying it. Well, I grew up in Nebraska, like I said, and uh, let's see, I graduated from high school in 2009, I feel like which was forever ago, <laughs> and uh, and then I moved around a little bit, I moved to California for a little while and loved it, and kind of, I didn't take the school route, I more so was kind of like an artist, a freelance artist for the last, I don't know, six years, trying to figure it out. And then I married a man from Whitesburg, and here I am. <laughs> it's been really cool. I love it here. What are some of the experiences you've had with healthcare? My experience um, has been, I guess, different. But when I hear other people talk about their experiences, I realize how similar they are. Uh, when I first went to uh, have a checkup or something especially with reproductive like gynecology and things like that it was just a nightmare because I have PCOS which is polycystic ovarian syndrome and so when I went I was 14 years old and it was scary you know you're scared and you're like I don't want anyone to look at me I don't want someone to touch me so when you get delivered the news at 14 that your body is basically fighting itself you kind of don't know how to take it, and uh, when your only advice is, well, you just need to drop some weight, like, that's all you need to do, and you'll be fine. Like, later, knowing how difficult it actually is to lose weight when you have polycystic ovarian syndrome. So, um, I wasn't given a lot of information, uh, and, you know, like, this syndrome has affected my entire life, my mental health, my physical health, you know, my social health uh, in, in terms of how I interact with people, how comfortable I am, uh, to be with other people or show certain parts of my body that I feel insecure about. So, um, having more information and being treated better Mm -hmm. at an earlier age at my gynecological visit, uh, would have greatly impacted the rest of my life Mm -hmm. instead of being left in the dark and just scared and feeling like I just need to lose weight. And that was my only problem. Not the happiest story with healthcare, but reality. It's reality. That was my experience. Uh, mine was. Uh, I feel like I was thrown many birth control options, like a lot, to the point where it was a little bit like overwhelming and too much. And um, I was always super underweight and like super 
like woozy all the time and I was always just like there was always something wrong I always you know I don't know I don't I never really figured it out they thought I was anemic but what they always um what my doctor always thought I should be on was birth control to like regulate my entire body and I thought it was very confusing because I was like I thought birth control was just this one thing and I just felt like I also wasn't given a lot of information and also this might not necessarily be um reproductive health but I I felt like there was a lot of disconnect between doctor information and like diet and I really wished growing up that I knew how to eat better and I wanted that from my doctor. You know, I feel like, like you said, it would have changed a lot of things for me and my health later on. And later, um, I realized that I wasn't even supposed to be on birth control, like the pill, because mm-hmm. I had a higher chance of stroke because I have migraines. And I didn't know that until last year. And I had been on the pill twice, like for long periods of time. And that freaked me out. That was a very upsetting thing to hear. I was like, why didn't any other other of like the four doctors that I've had not say anything? So just confusion, really. Yeah. Leaving with many uh, open-ended, you know, like open questions that were not answered. Yeah. Paulina, when you moved here from, was it Nebraska, mm-hmm. um, do you feel like it was difficult to get access to the health care you wanted in our area? A little bit, yeah. I, I felt, um, you know, I think moving to a new town or a new place is generally a bit confusing and uh, hard to navigate. So I think in general, I was probably just like, where do I go? What hospital do I go to? What's the best? Um, and I, I always have had a woman doctor for the most part, and I knew that that's what I wanted. I didn't feel like I had a place where I could go that made me feel maybe, I don't know. I just kind of felt like um on an assembly line a little bit. Oh, yeah. And I didn't like the way that felt. And um, I'm already an anxious person by nature, so going to a doctor freaks me out. And I just felt like that kind of environment maybe freaked me out a little bit. Because mm-hmm. um, assembly line, you know, you just don't feel like it's a personal conversation. But as far as healthcare goes, I don't feel like it was extremely difficult I will say that it's just been consistent in my life where I feel like I'm constantly like the option for me has just been here, have some birth control here, have some, you should just get on the pill. Mm. It'll just help everything. And I don't feel like that's helpful to me. I agree. They kind of approach you at, they approach you with birth control. Like it's a cure all. Like Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're lucky to get it, but if you have other issues going on, that's not the only answer. It's mm-hmm. just like, well, here, here's the pill. Like, try this one. And then you go back and they're like, well, I got a bunch of free samples for this one. Here, have this one. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, but my body is still doing this. Mm-hmm. Why, why? Like, I have so many questions and you're just handing me a pill. Mm-hmm. What are some changes you all would hope to see happen about the healthcare in our area? For me, I think uh, transparency and... Um, Visibility is the biggest thing as far as getting the word out there of what services are out there, like in our area, like, hey, we're having this, hey, we have this program, or hey, we're doing free checks for this, or um, et cetera, et cetera. I feel like everything is kind of so hush-hush, like if there is actually good benefits or uh, free things going on in the healthcare realm, a lot of people in the hills and hollers are kind of left in the dark. Well, I had no idea that was going on or how would I have known? You know, if there's just flyers up around one town, you know, our entire county isn't just Whitesburg. There's people in McRoberts. There's people in Blackie. There's, you know, people everywhere. And a lot of people just don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So I think just being more um, conscious of, hey, there's more people than just Whitesburg population. And, um, I don't know. The biggest thing for me is just resources and communicating uh, with the public about said resources. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like what you said about the transparency, Um, uh, you know, because this was said before. So I don't it's not my original thought, but I could see how somebody going into an environment like, you know, you're going to a clinic or you're going to, you know, just go get a checkup or something. And then you have all of these pictures of or if you don't necessarily want your baby. Or, you know, there's a lot of, you know, things that can happen, but you're in this room where there's pictures of babies everywhere. And it's, it. I feel like healthcare should be for every type of woman in every type of scenario. And sometimes I don't feel like that's a, that's the case. I feel like they, t- they cater to, you know, one type of woman, which is, 
you know, being a mother. And that's so beautiful, but that's not for everybody. So that and heterosexual. Yeah. Heterosexual. It's very heterocentered and having to go in and constantly be like, yes, I'm sexually active, but no, you know, not with a penis or Mm -hmm. whatever. And so then you have to basically come out Mm -hmm. every time you go to the doctor. You're like, yes, I'm having sex. But no, it's not with a man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, you know, it's it's just that awkward interaction. And they kind of just like look at you like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. And so your experience is totally different. And like you said, you know, all women. So if you don't decide that you want your child, it's just like kind of pushed on you with your surroundings, mm-hmm. with the imagery and uh, how they interact with you. So less judgment. I less, think would yeah. be really nice. Less judgment. If you were talking to a younger woman about periods, what would be some advice you would give her? It's hard to say, go to your doctor, because even then, I don't trust doctors here, uh, gynecological anyway. Uh, That's just my personal thing. And neither of my parents sat down and talked to me, so I wouldn't say, talk to your parents. It's, It's like, I would say, look it up. Do your own research. Uh... When it comes to your period in your body, journal how you're feeling. Like if you're feeling different symptoms than you think your friends are feeling, like I'm feeling really depressed and I don't know why, or uh, I have hair starting to grow in like weird places, I don't get it, I don't know why, or I'm feeling extremely mad or I'm feeling extremely sad. Like if you're feeling like an influx of all of these things, just journal it, write it down. And then when you go to your doctor, express, hey, I'm feeling all of these things and I'm not sure why. And uh, or talk to your parents or a peer, someone you trust, someone you think you can really talk to and that will listen to you. I would say talk with them Mm -hmm. about what you're feeling. Yes, I think that uh, to find a group of of women or, you know, other humans who are having periods, I think is very important. So you can bounce ideas off of each other and also to remember that. Your period, while it's a very, maybe your first period, maybe it's a, it's a very scary thing sometimes, it's so natural. And I feel like I didn't get to have the experience with my period like maybe I wanted. Um, I was very grossed out by it. I always, always, you know, you, you just tend to kind of stuff stuff it back up in there or, you know, use a bunch of tampons. You know, it's there's so many other ways that you can experience your period um, in a very wholesome appreciative grateful way because it is part of being human it's part of being who we are and um, I just would say no don't fear it so much and embrace it a little bit more Um, and also definitely eat the food that you want to eat when you're feeling cranky because it's okay (laughs) like it's okay (laughs) yeah and it's okay to be gross women are allowed to be gross so you know it happens and you know, and don't just apologize start, for and don't it. Do, do not apologize. If a tampon falls out of your bag in front of a guy, <laughs> you just pick that tampon right back up and you throw it at him. Throw it at him, <laughs> or put it back in your bag, or say, "Hey, I gotta go change something. Whatever, <laughs> what of it?" So yeah, totally be unapologetically <laughs> gross. Yeah, because you know a lot of the times boys get to be so gross. I mean, they're sweaty and you know they've got hair everywhere. It's just like it's not fair. It's such a double standard that we have to be this prim and proper and secretive mm-hmm. person because it's uncomfortable for other people to see it because periods are weird to talk just, about. And yeah. you're like, I'm sorry, this happens to fifty percent of the population once a month, every month. It's yeah. pretty normal. Yeah. So, yeah. Relax. <laughs> We're not going to keep it a secret anymore. Don't keep it a secret. It happens. Okay. I get so mad when guys are like, ew, she has a period. I'm like, welcome to earth. Your what? mom had one. <laughs> your grandma had one. <laughs> your little sister, so she true. will have one. Yeah. Your daughter. Like, get it together. You were so right. <laughs> Weak. But in that regard, it's definitely important in those moments. Maybe they don't hear you right away and maybe you don't have to be the person to do it. But in those moments, it is important to have that conversation with men who maybe are fearful or grossed out. Most of the time they're grossed out because of fear. And most of the time they're grossed out because they're trying to act cool in front of people. And so if if people, I feel like if we respond with maybe anger towards that, 
it's it just fuels the fire even more but if we respond in education and are like mm. in patience and are like hey i understand that that grosses you out but it's so natural <laughs> like this is my body and that's what my body does every month friend yeah <laughs> i'm not calling you gross <laughs> you know yeah, like... just patience and unfortunately that is the society that we live in but it is good to have these conversations with men who are yeah. weirded out it's healthy, healthy. Exposure. exposure therapy <laughs> What are some of the barriers to accessing birth control you all think happens in our area? I think, like Michella said, um, maybe lack of communication, would you say? Yeah, lack of communication. Not knowing. Like, yeah. many people don't think, oh, well, I can just go to the health department and they'll give me birth control. I had no idea until we had that meeting the other day. Yeah. I had no idea. But even then, you know, some birth controls aren't meant for certain bodies so it's like although it may be free and you're unaware but then you become aware and you get it maybe it's not the match for you and it could send you into a spiral of other issues but there is a chance that you could get it and it works for you and it's great but it's just being aware uh, mm -hmm. and knowing of the resources in the area and um you know in school I don't really know how okay it is in school but like I'm not with me, but with in general, mm -hmm. um, you know, to have information about different kinds of birth control in school, to have yeah. this conversation of this is yes, this is a health class. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to be open about our bodies. And then this here's information that maybe the doctors won't tell you. Maybe they will. I mean, I just feel like if you are around your classmates and you're making this normal, it will feel normal to talk about it Yeah, from a younger age. I think so, too. I think everything is kind of, it, it still even goes back to, like, what you said, everything kind of just being hushed and secretive. Like, as a woman, it's just like, oh, that's girls getting their period. We're not going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Like, birth control, oh, that's just so you won't have a baby. You know, like, it goes so beyond that because birth control does do great things for a lot of different women's bodies, not just for their period, but for other things, of course. Yeah, I was on the... Uh Depro Provera since last year. I was on it a year and I'm not dogging it or anything. It really does work. <laughs> but I feel like when I switched um, off of it to go like to the, a normal peel, mm -hmm. um, it's messed my body up really bad. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't, yeah. I don't feel the same and mm -hmm. my periods are not the same mm -hmm. like yeah. they were. And if it affected me this way, like switching Imagine what it does to everybody else, and they don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they have no idea, or they just, like, deal with it. They're just like, oh, well, the doctor gave me this now, so I'm, I'm just going to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And this is the way it is. Like, yeah, this no is the way it is. Like, there's no, yeah, like, there's no one to listen to you mm -hmm. and uh, pay attention to your symptoms. That's just scary. It is. And that's really good that you're, like, super hyper aware of that and how it's making your body feel, because that's mm -hmm. so important. You were the only person that knows your body, and yeah. you have to listen to it, ultimately. Uh, I actually went to the doctor uh, yesterday, and I told him how I felt. I told him um, how my body is reacting, and basically what happened was he just switched me to another pill, and what happens if that makes it worse? What happens if that makes me react in another way? Mm -hmm. mm. So, I know. It's like putting a Band-Aid over a Band-Aid yeah. over a Band-Aid, and, like, by the end of it, you're like, okay, but, like there's still all of these issues now and now there's even more issues and then mm -hmm. and I doesn't it kind of make you feel like you're like kind of a test subject or yeah. you're like the, we're tr <laughs> yeah. poking and prodding at you just to kind of you know but you're just like wait but this is my life this is my actual body yeah I can't function this way mm -hmm. I was on the pill for a long time and um this was maybe two years ago or maybe a year and a half ago and I've never felt so depressed in my entire life I immediately knew it was the pill I mean and I stuck it out my mom was like just keep doing it for another two months and see what happens and I did and it was the worst two months ever and I you know had I not listened to my had I if I was like oh yeah the doctor knew, knew, knows what he's talking about mm -hmm. um this is just the way my life is now <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh I can't even imagine you know yeah listening to your body yeah that's the biggest thing is like if you have a gut feeling if if you think something's wrong then stop it right there mm -hmm. and the interesting thing is there you know there's a lot of birth control out there that's not necessarily in pill form or in shot form or in hormone form it could be you know there's this 
have you heard of the like temperature taking your temperature thing every single morning to see it's a little bit tedious but it's interesting it's like you take your temperature and i think it shows you how fertile you are and how no very odd (laughs) but there's like (laughs) uh, you know underneath all of these like actual like consuming of hormones Mm -hmm. there's like a bunch of other options too you know so just keep that in mind Might be a weird one. <coughs> Do you all have anything else you'd like to add? I felt like there was like 20 more questions to go. So bottom line, listen to your bodies. I think, well, this is more for you guys. I think it's wonderful what you guys are doing mm. and having this conversation, especially at your age <laughs> and at your ages. I wish that I had a group of women around me like you guys do. And are um, are getting a lot of different types of people's views because we are not universal. We are not one person. We mm-hmm. are not all the same. Um, I've learned a lot of things about being Michella's friend um, just by being her friend, and she's learned some things from me. And I think it's it's so important that we listen to each other because ultimately that's going to help us not judge each other. That's going to help us not cast shame on maybe you decide to do something that I don't necessarily agree with, but that's you, that's your body and that's your journey. And Mm. there's nothing I can do or say that will change what you want to do. And it's not my place. So anyways, I just think it's great to, to have these conversations together. It's like when you say, oh, yeah, I have PCOS, and someone doesn't say, what's that? They say, oh, my God, me too. And mm-hmm. then it's like the hugest sigh of relief. It's just like you get it. Mm-hmm. You understand. So, yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great. Good job. Talk to everybody. Talk to your friends. Caitlin Cummings is a 21-year-old fellow from Perry County. Caitlin wanted to capture what gender roles looked like for women in her community. She chose to sit down with friend Professor Jenny Williams for this intimate discussion about women's roles, barriers, and rights. Hey y'all, it's Caitlin Cummins here. I'm a fellow for All Access EKY. For my piece, I wanted to focus on what it's like growing up as a woman in my home region. Here's my good friend, Jenny Williams. My name is Jenny Williams, and I am a professor at Hazard Community and Technical College, and I grew up here in Hazard. So, do you feel that education and job opportunities for women in the region is different than what it is for men? Um, I don't know. That's a hard question because I've been raised in such an atmosphere of white privilege that if it, that, and also because I grew up, my dad was a doctor, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so I, I had, I didn't have very many, I haven't ever had to overcome very many barriers. And so that's kind of a hard question for me to answer because those opportunities have always been there for me, um, both, you know, with jobs and with my education. But I think that it probably is a little bit different, um, particularly if I think about people, I'm 52, if I think about people my age, when we came out of school, out of high school, um, a lot of men my age were able to go work in the coal mines and make good money, big money, um, you know, all their lives, you know, uh, two cars, vacations to the beach in the summer kind of yeah. money. And women didn't really have that option. Um, mm-hmm. there, there, there weren't the equivalent jobs right. for women. Because, you know, women are just supposed to stay at home, take yeah. care of the kids. Yeah, and, and they're just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and while there were women minors, but I think also, I think now, I think when I kind of look around, the women I know who are professionals tend to be in sort of um, gender, um, stereotypically feminine gendered jobs like mm-hmm. teaching, like nursing. Yeah, you um, see a lot of girls going to nursing here. A lot of girls go into nursing. A lot of girls, a lot of women go into teaching. More women than men go into those two fields. Although mm-hmm. I think that's starting to change. I think a lot more yeah. men are doing nursing, but I think that women, um, maybe through the and I have no idea if any of this is statistically true, but I, I feel kind of like women have had access to those fairly you know high paying jobs mm-hmm. in teaching and nursing in a way that men didn't have access to. So I don't really know. That's a good question. I think in the area that women just have barriers in general that men don't face or have to deal with? Oh, for sure. I think in healthcare, that's the most probably um, obvious and probably the most pernicious area where women um, don't have the same opportunities as men do, simply because I think women's health can be a lot more complicated. When we think about reproductive health um, Mm -hmm. and sexual health, I definitely don't think, and mental health as well, I don't think that um, women's needs are met in this region as, Mm -hmm. as closely as men's are. No. 
feel, feel that women do most of the child rearing in the region? Oh, hell yes. I mean, that's completely so true. And we're seeing now, you know, not just women raising their own children, but grandmothers and aunts mm-hmm. raising um, children who have been victims of the opioid epidemic. And right. I do think that that falls, even even in, in households where um, where both both partners are really super enlightened. Um, like in my own um, marriage, um, my ex-husband uh, is probably one of the most feminist people I know mm-hmm. and, and one of the most enlightened people I know. And still, I felt like I did the lion's share of certain kinds of work. So he certainly did all the dishes, always. I never did dishes during our whole oh, nearly 20-year <laughs> marriage. And he certainly did his share of the child-rearing. Um, I don't mean to imply at all that he didn't, and he is, was, and is a wonderful father, but there were certain sort of, I I don't even know what to call it, like the emotional work of parenting Mm -hmm. that I felt fell on me. The work of, you know, being the one that calls to make the, being sort of the household manager, which, you know, emotional work of being a manager, like the household manager, Mm -hmm. um, I think falls on women's shoulders a lot of the time. Even if you have a partner who's who does more than his share yeah. of housework or of child minding, just having to be the person that sort of makes those decisions about when it's time for someone to go to the doctor and calling and making the appointments right. and arranging the schedule and being sure that, you know, a child can get to both a, a, you know, a birthday party and a soccer game. Those sorts of burdens are really hard to, yeah. to manage. And I feel like that falls on women, even if we're starting to get more sort of enlightened about who does what as far as the actual work of running a household goes, I still think that a lot of that falls on women's yeah, shoulders. Yeah, like they just think that, like, you're the only one that can make the decision. Yeah, yeah. and it's tiring. Yeah. Um, what kind of changes would you like to see for women in the region? I would really like to see better access to health care um, on sort of a policy, tangible um, scale. For women, I'd like to see better access to all kinds of health care, mental health care, physical health care. And I'd like to see women understand that they are that they don't have the boundaries that often that they think they do. Mm -hmm. I'm really concerned about young women um, and their sexual health. And I don't just mean physical. Um, It worries me. I think I, I talk to teenagers and I think that girls often see it as a way to have power or a way to make someone like them. And that's just, um, it's upsetting. And at the same time, I think that young women, nobody's telling them that sex should feel good to them, Mm -hmm. that they should be getting something out of sex besides, um, you know, thinking that someone cares about them. And so that feel love or power. Yes. And that really concerns me. And as the mother of a daughter, it really concerns me because I don't know how to have that conversation with her. Really. Mm -hmm. I feel really lucky that there are people like Tanya Turner around, you know, to whom I can turn to have that conversation for me with my daughter yeah. or that I feel like I at least know it's an issue and I'm willing to find someone to have that conversation mm-hmm. or figure out a way to have it myself. That I think um, too often, you know, women don't, I mean, women my age, I'm 52 and women my age don't know how to ask for what they want in bed. Yeah. And I, it's, that's a concern of mine because I think that it, that that power dynamic and that doing things to make people love you or doing things because it'll give you a hold on somebody. I think that spills spills over out of the bedroom and out of the bed and into other areas mm-hmm. of our life. And as soon as we can sort of realize that life should be mutual, not just sex, life yeah, should be mutual. Um, I think it's really important to figure out a way to teach that to our, to our young women. Do you feel safe as a woman in the community? I do feel safe. And that's probably as much a reflection of my own misguided um, Pollyanna-ish attitude about nothing ever happening to me as it is anything. I tend to not always lock my doors. I live in a neighborhood that... Um, I love because it's um, because I love it. It's very diverse. It's very um, um, it's a lot of fun to live in it. But there, you know, there are there's there are crimes that happen in my neighborhood. I should yeah. probably not feel as safe as I do. I will say that I think maybe a better way to ask that question to me would be, do I do I feel do I feel that my daughter is safe? Yeah. Um, and yeah. the answer to that, because I just tend to sort of disregard my own personal safety. And I, yeah. even if it's ridiculous, I believe that I exist in some bubble of good fortune because I just always have had knock wood. But I do worry about my daughter. I worry about her um, more than I worry about my son. Mm-hmm. I worry about something happening to her. I worry about her being raped. I worry about her being taken advantage of. I worry Absolutely. about, um, you know, I worry about, I worry about my daughter in a way that I've never worried about my yeah. son. When I grew up, it was all like, my brother could really, seems like he could do whatever he want. But whenever I used to do just anything, my mom would always say no, because this, this, and this mm-hmm. could happen. And that shouldn't be a thing. 
I hope you all enjoyed that. I just wanted to say thank you to Jenny Williams for telling us so much about her experience as a woman in the region. women's health care in eastern Kentucky, Mary Breckenridge's name often comes up. 23-year-old fellow Destiny Caldwell has Mary's story as told through her longtime friend, Kitty Ernst. Mary Breckenridge was the founder of the Frontier Nursing Service, a group of midwives and nurses who rode on horseback to provide care to mothers and babies. Born from a prominent family that included a congressman, the U.S. Minister to Russia, and Vice President John C. Breckenridge. She traveled across Europe and the U.S., learning about health care and helping families until she discovered her life's calling in Leslie County, Kentucky. Now we hear from Kitty Ernst, a board member of the Frontier Nursing University and a friend of Mary Breckenridge. Mary Breckenridge said, All of health care begins with the care of the mother. That's your lead sentence. All of health care begins with the care of of the mother, and you better believe that. From when she was a little girl in Russia, and her brother was born, and for the first time, she saw a midwife at a birth, no doctors, which she never knew anything about a midwife or who they were, but it impressed her that the the midwife didn't need a doctor there. If, they, if something went wrong, they needed them and would call them. But as long as everything was going according to uh, nature, why? They did. So, and that, so that impressed her. Everything in her life that led her up, her whole experience in France, her experience in Washington, her experience in New York, St. Luke's Hospital in her training, all of those things were re- preparing her and building relationships. She was very good at building relationships. There's lots of little stories in her books about that gives you the feeling that this is a, a very sensitive and a very caring woman. So, and when she, she wrote her book in bed, she had a hospital bed and a table over it, and she wrote the whole book Longhand, you know, there were no computers, no typewriters, and that kind of. I mean, she didn't use the typewriter, and then her secretary would type it up, and so she was very intent upon getting that done because she was quite elderly even then. But at four o'clock, she in the afternoon, she always came down for tea and sherry, and then dinner, and. If you were out on a district and you had to bring a mother or somebody into the hospital to see the doctor or whatever, I used to stop for tea when she was having tea. I'd stop at Wendover so I could see her and talk to her. 
And um, so that's how I got to know her. She impressed me as being a brilliant woman. You, if you asked her a question, she would always either quote the Bible or quote the classics in literature and so forth that applied to this question you were asking her. And then she would launch into her discussion, her answer of it. You need to read White Neighborhoods because you, your mouth will drop open. You will say, how did she do it? How did she face all these problems? First of all, she introduced nurse midwives to the United States. They came from Scotland and England. And she had traveled over there. She had spent <clears throat> her life trying to find, she wanted to live a life that had meaning. She served in World War One in France, and she, um, that was with an American relief, voluntary relief group, and she was off in the mountains in France, and the, and the children and the babies were dying, they were starving, and so she asked, sent in her letters that she sent home, said that if I had uh, 500 goats, I could save five, you know, a thousand children. And her wealthy friends here in this country got put the goats together and shipped them to France and had them drive them over the mountains to where Mary was, and the children survived. France wanted her to stay in France and do what she did out in the mountains there to all of France, you know, set up public health nursing all through France. And she declined and said that was not her calling. And uh, she knew it was not her calling. And so she came home from there and and then felt called to work for children somewhere in America. And she chose Kentucky Mountains because it was so it was the most rural part of the country. It was the poorest cart part of the country and there was nobody there except every once in a while there'd be a phony doctor come through, some guy saying he was a doctor and peddling pills. And the births are all being done by granny midwives. Granny midwives are just also kindly women who have had children that go next door to help their neighbor give birth, that's all. But they have no education. But they they did good work. They did the best they could. And so she chose, she decided on Kentucky because her family was in Kentucky. And she knew that you can't do anything alone. You can never do anything alone. You have to establish relationships and get people excited about it and wanting to help you. I mean, that, that, that was her whole thing. But you have to do something to show them what it is you're trying to do. So when she started the Frontier Nursing Service, she had a small inheritance from her mother, I think. She spent all of her own money before she asked anybody else for money. And she rode for six, mountains, six months all through Leslie County on horseback. She went through, I don't know, six horses and a mule doing it. And she stayed with the mountain people in their homes, even if it's only um, one room where they would put up a curtain around the bed that she was in. And asking them, surveying them about 
their health history, what they thought were the most important needs that they they had for health care. And so she did a whole, that was her whole, and she had another another woman that did another survey on um, the education. So she did her research, you see. She didn't. She just didn't say, oh, I think I'll just go down to the mountains and do blah, blah, blah. You know, she spent years re- preparing for this and built relationships. Then she contacted, she met with people from the University of Kentucky, from the Kentucky Health Department, from Louisville. And she even had contacted Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, I know, because I sent a a kid up there with a club foot from my district, and they did surgery on him. That's, that's building relationships. Is was um, She was masterful at that, and they loved her for it. She spent a lot of time building those relationships, and, but then when she decided to start, she paid the mountain people, got mountain men helping her to build those things, and she built the four. She built four, um, four of the centers and the hospital within five years. Can you imagine that? Every time I was in hiding, I would look at the stones in that hospital and say, my God, you know, those men had to chip those stones by hand with a ham and chisel. And then when she got the hospital built, she couldn't find a water supply. She drilled five times for water, and it would always never be enough. Meanwhile, they were hauling the water in barrels and a wagon up the mountain on the dirt road that was there to the hospital to do all all the laundry, the laundry for the nurses that were there, for the patients, bathing the patients, cooking. Can you imagine that? She got a water witch finally, and that's the same. They're, They're using the same... Well, they use the town water now, but they they finally got a well that served the hospital. It was enough to serve the hospital and the nurses' home. But they needed help. They needed help with uh, particularly with the horses, you know, because the horses taking care of horses is is a big job. You know, you have to feed them and groom them and clean the stables for them and everything. And so that it's not like jumping in your car and turning the key. And so she got the notion, and also they they had, they had to move supplies. You know, the districts all needed supplies delivered, and so who was going to deliver that? You know, there would that, that could take a whole day to take the uh, um, medicine for immunizations and all that stuff uh, out to the districts. And so that's how she developed the Courier Corps. She talked with her wealthy friends that lived in the city. She formed the city committees. There was Boston, New York, Washington, Philadelphia, Chicago. You know, they were all over the place. And those women would raise money for her, and once a year she would go and hold a meeting with them and give them a talk, a pep talk, to do it. And that was the beginning of the Courier Corps. They then opened it up to anybody that wanted to come. And they and they came. People like Kate Arrow and Jane Powell, they were all couriers. That's how they got connected to the Frontier Nursing Service. Again, building relationships. Once she invited me to have lunch with her in New York, because I went to New York and I went to school in New York, and 
and I had lunch with her at the Cosmopolitan Club, and we just chatted. And then she was doing fundraising there, so I stayed for the fundraising. And I, I thought, wow, this lady is dynamite. She really knew how to get those ladies to open up their pocketbooks and write checks. They would do it right there. And she just told them stories. She just told them stories about the, how hard the, the mountain people had it, you know, and what it was like to work in a coal mine and, you know, and try and raise children and all of this kind of stuff there. And the need for better schools and better education, and 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 then of course the the health. The most important thing was the health care. Does she have the resilience to do this? And there are there are of course she did the numerous things. Just to me, what kind of how much resilience did it take? to stay with that hospital project when five times you ran out of water. And there was no guarantee that you ever would get it. She had enormous amounts of resilience. She could always, and she could always, with her critical thinking, could come up with a solution. The Courier Corps, a brilliant, brilliant idea. Because then those daughters became supporters of the Frontier Nursing Service and donated, you know, to keep it going. To me, and I'm reflecting now, you know, on my whole uh, 65 years or more, what is it, no, 70 years as a nurse and... 65 years as a midwife. And I have to say that Mary Breckenridge has the answer. She had the answer to how to deliver health care in this country. She had a system that reached from the head of a creek to the most sophisticated medical centers in the country. To this day, Mary Breckenridge's legacy lives on in the school she founded and the countless women and children she helped in these Kentucky mountains. Questions about health care are still abundant. Young women seem to have many questions about reproductive and sexual health. When talking about birth control and reproductive health care, sex education is usually brought up. Hannah Adams is a 19-year-old peer trainer with All Access EKY. Here is her story about the sex education experiences of young college students from Moorhead State University. I had sex ed in middle school and high school, like most people do. Looking back now, as a freshman in college, I realized what I was taught wasn't good enough. I always left these classes with unanswered questions, but was too embarrassed and self-conscious to ask for more information, because I thought I was the only one who didn't understand. I now know this is far from the truth, for many people believe their sex ed experience wasn't good enough. Jeannie Daniel, a freshman at Moorhead State University, shares her sex ed experience. They separated the boys and girls and put us in separate classrooms. And then the girls watched the girl video, the guys watched the guy video on like how our bodies worked and things like that. That day they sent home a consent form and then the next day you were supposed to bring it back with your parents signing saying that you can watch the opposite sexes video. They talked about condoms and that was pretty much it. That's the only thing that I've ever received was that awkward video. Alyssa Francis, who also attends Moorhead State University, had a similar experience. The only thing that they informed us was in sixth grade 
a woman came in and showed us how to open a pad. In seventh grade, a person from the health clinic came once and told us STDs, and that was it. They said that this guy was going to come once a month, and he only came once. And from what I remember, he had a PowerPoint and told us about the STDs. And then he commented, see, with the guys, I have to show them the pictures of what they look like. But I can trust the girls because they're smarter and will just need to know the names and the side effects. And that was one class period, one day of one month, and never again. A lot of the stuff that I know about safe sex, I have researched on the internet and for many hours at a time. I haven't really been informed ever of how to properly use birth control or other safe sex methods. Without that research, I wouldn't know anything that I know today because no one's really told me. They focused more on academics than teaching us, and that's why two of our students got pregnant. So what can we do to make sex ed more informational and less awkward? I feel like it probably would be more effective to like actually talk about STDs and pregnancy and like I feel like they probably should have given girls resources like hey if it does happen where to go, who to talk to and things like that. Make it less of an awkward discussion to talk about because anytime that they talked about anything remotely taboo at my high school they separated the boys and the girls and it was very obvious what was happening and it didn't, and people were warning each other in the hallways, you're talking about sex ed today, just make it less awkward and more efficient. If you're an adult with teenagers in your life, think about the conversations you have with them about sexual health and education. It might be uncomfortable, but this is crucial information everyone needs to know. For more information, follow us at All Access EKY on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's it for this week's edition of Mountain Talk. If you'd like to listen to this or other episodes of Mountain Talk again, you can find it on our website at www.wmmt.org or download it on SoundCloud. I've been your host, Willa Johnson, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening. down the way you sneak in you pay for her love her body and her soul still you call yourself a man and say you just don't understand how a woman can turn